It's been a couple weeks since I connected last with my guest, but, um, you know, life is so fleeting and so unpredictable, and so it's just, um, my guest was uh, going, uh, having a hand surgery that um, turned out to be successful. He's removed his stitches, and he's hoping to be able to get his axe back in his hand, and, you know, I think we're all sort of day-to-day, but... Um, you know, it's it's always unpredictable. Uh, two nights ago or three nights ago, Alvi Miola had a heart attack on stage. Uh, my dear uncle, Don Fumilaro, who was one of the greatest ambassadors of music, uh, passed away from pancreatic cancer at a far too young age. So I take it very seriously, my job. I also take seriously the... Uh, the humbleness of living a righteous life, and I know my guest does as well. Dallas Hodge, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. It's a pleasure to be back. Sorry for all the discombobulation and moving of scheduling. Uh, that was worth it, man. been happening, and I had a washing machine decide that it didn't want to keep the fill level at the right level, overflowed. I had an inch of water in my laundry room and then had to go out and go buy another washer-dryer. So it's like anything that could go wrong this week went wrong. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're dry and I'm glad you're safe. You know, I, I I wanted to ask you, out of all the Funk Brothers, were you guys closest with Bob Babbitt? Did you know any of those cats very well? Dennis Coffey? Um, I think I met Dennis once and Bob once, but I wasn't that close to them. Uh, now, my drummer, Larry Zach, because they're in an the older age group, my drummer, Larry Zach, knew Coffee and he knew Bob real good. I think, uh, yeah, I think Coffee. well, this is what I want, I wanted to read this to you, and I know, I know that, you know, you weren't part of it, this exactly, but I wanted to know if it even got on your radar. Uh, this is from an interview I did with a great bass player from Detroit, Reggie McBride. He said, oh, yeah. I mean, Reggie, he said, uh. There was an exodus from Detroit in 1972 of cats that were with Motown but had to move to L.A. because Motown moved to L.A. and the Funk Brothers had nowhere to go. Right. I remember talking to Eddie Willis at the 20 Grand, and he told me that everybody split at the same time. They were mad at Barry Gordy because he didn't do anything when he got out there about getting them some work. If you didn't come out here on your own, you were basically lost. If you did get out there and you were able to break into the studio, he would use you. Now, my question for you is, um, was there a seismic change in the vibe of the Detroit music scene in your mind when Motown uh, moved to L.A.? Somewhat. I I, I wouldn't say it was monumental, uh, except for those people who were truly close to the the label. Sure. Um. For me, it didn't really make any difference at all. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, my partner in crime and in the music side, Gary Putnam, a.k.a. Diz, uh, Diz. He, was, he was playing with a band then that they went down, and it was an all-white band, and they went down to Motown to audition. And I forget who Barry's sidekick was at that time, but he came into the room where they were playing and said, oh, come on into the studio. I want to take him and, and, and track this and, and so Barry can hear it. Okay. It went in. They tracked it. Six weeks later, it was out and became a huge hit uh, by the Capitals called... Uh, um, what was the name of the band? Uh, they were called the Capitals, I believe. And, wow. and the name of the song was Cool Jerk. Holy cow. Yeah. That was, you know, Barry had a reputation. Junior did, not as much as Senior did, but Barry Junior did have a reputation for, uh, shall we say, borrowing other people's songs yeah. without letting them know. Yeah. Oh, I, oh my God. <laughs> so what you're telling me that your, your partner in crime had his song ripped by another group. The band that he was playing with, yes. They went down and they auditioned to try to get on to, 
I think Motown had a, a white side label. You're absolutely right, dude. Out. This is wait. So when you say they went down, you mean they flew out to L.A. or they stay, They were in a, no. They, they went to uh, into uh, Motown in Detroit. Wow. So yeah, because there was a white. You're right. A white label. I see a few of those things. They never really do it for me, but I'm always curious about that. And then you're telling me that the song that they at least demoed, eventually wound up with, with a group called The Capitals. If they wrote the song, and, and, and Motown stole it, and they recorded it for The Capitals, it became property of Motown, and back in those days, you know, it, nobody went up against Motown to fight them legally. They were just too big, too many big lawyers, and too much money. Wow. So, you know, if you were a loan, loan, loan artist, so to speak, and something like that happened, what are you going to do? There's nothing you could do. And, you know, nowadays it would be a, a lawsuit from here to New York and back. But, you know, back then it was just Motown was too big to mess with. So it was like, you know, they lost that song. But it was amazing because when the Capitals came out with it, Diz was telling me he was driving in the car and all of a sudden he heard, and was like, Oh man, that's us, but not us, <laughs> dude. I would have, I would have like lost. I, I'm glad I, God, I'm glad he didn't get in a car accident. I would have freaked out. Oh yeah. Oh my. I mean, you know, well, it was, just, it was like I told you about the thing with Grand Funk. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it was like when I got in the car one day and I heard Grand Funk doing some kind of wonderful. I was like, huh? And then when it ended up being, we did a slight rearrangement on that. I think I shared that with you. And towards the tail of the tune, it was pretty specific, and you could tell that we had did a rearrange of that section. And they did it exactly like we had done the night that they popped by the red carpet. So I was like, okay. you know. And the fact that the Soul Brothers Six wrote the song, I couldn't do anything about it. Right. You know, And there wasn't enough of a rewrite to get at least mechanical. So, you know, it was like, okay. Well, thanks, guys. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad it was a big hit for you. <laughs> Dude, that is... So, let me just get to the... So, ultimately, this is fascinating to me because, uh, you know, my one of my heroes, Neil Cassidy, lived out in Los Gatos. How did you... Why did you wind up moving, ultimately, to Santa Cruz later in, that, in the decade, in the 70s? In 1977... My drummer, Diz, uh, my partner, his sister and brother-in-law lived in Santa Cruz. And Rusty, his brother-in-law, they built a trimaran that they ended up sailing to Hawaii when they moved there. My God. Uh, so, but Diz moved out because he wanted to move to the West Coast. He was burned out on Detroit and just wanted to go. And I said, all right, well, I'll be out there. Give me a year and I'll meet you there. So... The winter of 77-78 in Detroit was one of the worst winters on record. And I had a little 69 Austin America, okay, which is kind of like a square back Volkswagen, only a lot smaller. Right. I love that car. And uh, I was getting off the freeway one day to go to home, and, and the car only weighed about 1,800 pounds. So, and it was about six, seven inches of snow, and it was all piled up on the sides where they had bladed the drive, the exit ramp and stuff. Anyway, I lost it at the top of the ramp and put it into a snowbank. <laughs> so I had to get out of the car, and, you know, I ended up pulling it out of the snow myself because of the fact, like I said, it was only like about 1,700 pounds, and on ice, it's fairly easy to move. And I told, I told now my wife, when I got back to the apartment, I said, that's it, we're done. She goes, what are you talking about? I said, by November 7th next year, we will be in California. Wow. Period. And she goes, nah. I said, trust me. So I had bought a Chevy step van, built a bunk behind the driver's seat in the back end of the truck, had a couch underneath that, uh, installed a buddy seat, and a secondary gas tank, and that next year, uh, I ended up moving three of the guys from the band in Detroit, 
with me to Santa Cruz to join up with Diz and continue the band. Wow. And I rolled into Santa Cruz on the 7th, as I had predicted, after much grimace of getting there, I had to rebuild a transmission in North Platte, Nebraska. Uh, oh, my God. Broke down and then had a tire blowout in Reno. And hit that repair. And I had new tires on the truck, which was really weird. My father worked at Uniroil, and I think I t shared that with you. You did, yeah. So you had new tires. and they I had new yeah. tires, and for whatever reason, those tires separated. And I had it happen twice, once in Reno, which we ended up parking in the parking lot of a Uniroil dealer and slept in the truck overnight in order to get them to take and call Detroit and get the authorization to repair, replace the tire. Uh, and then I had another one separate once when we were going to Modesto with Steve Marriott. So, you know, same issue again, it separated and, you know, that well, was a whole other story. Well, no, I mean, like, I just want to be clear, like, this is just fascinating because, um... You guys weren't, were you a regional touring band? Were, how were you making, essentially you were a local band and you were singing for your supper that way, or were you guys touring the Midwest? Uh, well, when we lived in Detroit, we did it, We did anything from, we covered Michigan, Ohio. Uh, hmm. We go down to Illinois or Indiana every once in a while. We went up to Pennsylvania a couple of times. Uh, so, yeah, I guess you could say we were the tri-state area, as it was known. Mm -hmm. You know, that was our that was our, our proving ground, so to speak. And you uh, were and you were essentially playing six, seven nights a week, three, four sets a night. I mean, you weren't like a studio shark. You were primarily making your money playing live. We were we were a performance band. We yeah. were doing some clubs where we do two to three sets a night, and then you know on weekends we would try to travel as much as possible and and hit festivals on the weekend, hit some clubs on the weekend, uh, but that was pretty much what we did. Um, and you still felt you still felt, um, or maybe you can just talk about how you obviously you're loyal to the core. I'm, my mom's from Saginaw. I freaking love the loyalty of that of Detroit, but you still felt the vocabulary of the music was was growing enough where you wanted to bring the band out there with you? Well, I was always one of those guys that, you know, whatever band I ever had, they didn't die they did not die quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I you did, know, yeah, no, I did. It, it was uh I I tried to always surround myself as as I think I said in the first part, with people that I could get along with. Right, I love that. I did that. not look for people who were the best or most badass players. I had a few of those, which was great because it worked really good from the standpoint I could get along with people very well, and they could get along with me very well. And if I got those hot dog guys, that was even that was just one notch better. Um, but I left Detroit with with a bass player named uh, Drew Charles. And I brought uh, the guitar player that I was telling you about that, you know, said I was legendary there, uh, George Lemberg. I brought him. I brought a saxophone player named Tom O'Thomas. Um, and we came out in my truck with my dog and moved to Santa Cruz and met up with Diz there. And then we started working gigs in Santa Cruz and started working Santa Cruz to Monterey and then Santa Cruz up to up to Mir um, Half Moon Bay and then up into San Francisco and, you know, the whole Bay Area. Oh, my God. I don't want to rush through this. This is magical. First of all, the I don't know when you made that declaration to your then-girlfriend, now-wife, that you were moving. I don't know if it was actually in 78 or still in 77. It was, in, it was it, the winter of 77, 78 because it was so brutal. It was like, I think, probably around January, February. I said, you know, we're moving to California. Right. Well, no, I would say is Jake Feinberg came in, came into this life uh, March 78. So that's a very fascinating uh, that, that that winter you decided to move out of Detroit, which is amazing. Ah. You know, but this I need you to paint the picture because, I mean, what was the vibe in Santa Cruz at that time? It must have been the, one of the most righteous places to play. And I guess maybe more to the point. I mean, it seems easy now, but, like, how did you guys actually create a, a, um, 
I don't want to say following, but was it just that easy to find gigs, paying gigs back then? It's pretty daunting. Well, it was. We had a little bit of credentials coming from Detroit. Right. You know, not a big credentials, but we had some. And it was relatively easy to find the gigs because Santa Cruz at the time was really a musical musical community, uh, a very a, a very artistic community. Not only music, but in art and custom leather work. Oh. You know, I mean, yeah. it was a big television set of all kinds of things. Uh, so we started out slow. I mean, you know, Diz had been there for a year already, so he was kind of prepping the place for us before we got there. Totally. He was already talking to people that, you know, ran clubs and would go and sit in and play with certain people. And, you know, that's when we hooked up with some of the guys from the Doobie Brothers band that used to come out and sit in with us from time to time. Tyrone Porter and... Uh, no way, dude. Yeah. Oh, and, my and, God. Wait, you were playing like... So, like, you're going to tell me the first gig you played was at the Catalyst there? No. That was about the, the tenth gig that we played. <laughs> dude, I, lo- I went there... Last year, holy cow, man, that was the most old school. So, what were the some of the places you were? What what other where you where were you guys like? Where was this uh, the watering hole for for well, your we band? Used to play at the, we used to play at the Crow's Nest, which was in the harbor. Wow. We played at a club called the Albatross, which was down in Aptos. We played at JJ Saloon up in in the San Jose. Um, we played. Uh, Did you ever play uh, in, uh, like? Uh, the Saddle Rack or, or Sam's Place in San Jose? Hmm. Those were more, those were more cowboy bars, but I, I'm just, uh, you know, I wasn't... I mean, so you're, you were... You slowly developed a following. Ultimately, San Francisco, where were you playing there? Uh, well, let's see. That's where we played at J.J. Saloon, and uh, I think it was... I think it was JJ's. Johnny Winter was on the show, and I was opening for him. And then I ended up going and playing half a set with him. Wow. Um, and then we played a little club over in Fremont and on, the, on the other side of the bridge. Totally. The um, and there was a place down in South San Jose. I can't remember. I, I know I, it's on the tip of my tongue. It was, it was like a big cowboy bar, but it wasn't a cowboy bar. It was kind of like a, a classic rock bar, which was right up our alley at that time. Well, if you think of it, let me know what, what, it, what the name of it was. Because, yeah, there was like, uh, it was called the Saddle Rack, maybe. You know. That, that would have, that would have, that would have, you would, you would have recognized that. I mean, did, did the band... Did everybody dig the vibe out there? I mean, clearly coming from Detroit, it's, I mean, I, I just, it would be heaven. Now you know this better than anybody. I mean, Santa Cruz is like, I mean. It's it, changed. Well, I mean, let's, that, that's it putting was. it lightly. I mean, it's like gentrification with ab, abject poverty. You know, it's weird. Right. You know, when we, we had a ball and, and the reason being, it was, it was, I, I've said this so many times in my life, we became a big fish in a small pond. That's huge. So it was like, we got spoiled. It was like, you know, when we, when, <laughs> when I came to LA, I was a small fish in a huge ocean <laughs> <laughs> and it was a whole different program. But when I was living in Santa Cruz, we were, you know, we weren't a big, big fish, but, you know, we were a bigger fish than a lot of the, the local bands there. And, and we always strived to do our best in playing our own original music. You know, I, I did some other people's songs as covers, but they were always songs until this day that I enjoyed playing. So to me, I wasn't really doing a cover song. Absolutely. You know, I was doing a performance song. Uh, you know, Freddie King's Tore Down, B.B. Uh, King's Why I Sing the Blues, uh, even doing Chuck Berry. I mean, you know, uh, it was like we did that. And, and I, between the, the two, there were two primary writers in the band at that time, myself, which I probably did 80%, um, and the sax player that I had at the time, Kamal Thomas. He, he had some songs that he wrote that we did. And, um, 
but it was always the, the whole, I think one of the reasons why we did as well as we did is because we were an original band. You could go see a cover band at other venues in town, but you had to go to specific venues to see the bands that were doing more original music, like the Catalyst, like uh, there was a club up on SoCal Avenue right by uh, Highway 1. It's still there, JC's Saloon. Wow. Um, you know, and a few other places. You know, we used to play a club up in, in Ben Loman called Scapazzi's. It was an Italian restaurant. And we do, I think, three sets there. They fed us really great Italian. Dude, that sounds fantastic. Like, you're blasting out original funk, rock, blues in an Italian restaurant? Oh, yeah. This is... Let I me ask you, have, like, this is so... Song, I used to have yeah. a song that set that I used to do all the time called El Dorado. Oh my God. And uh, there was a point in time when we were playing at Scapazzi's one night where I forget exactly <laughs> how it happened, but I think Diz stood up from behind the drums and ended up throwing a shot glass against the wall. Right. Next thing we knew, there were about 15 people in the bar doing the same thing. <laughs> and the owner came, owner came up to us on the break and went, Dallas. Can you guys cool it with the glasses? <laughs> because you're costing me a lot of money. Setting a bad example, dude. <laughs> but we became known for that when we went to that club. So even though we didn't do it anymore, other people did. I know. They were like, oh, here's those cats again, man. Oh, man. Oh, it's time to throw the glasses. Dude. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a brilliant marketing tool, dude. Yeah, I was good. So, I mean, because it's so fascinating at that period of time, even though it was happening in the moment and it, I'm sure you didn't really have a historical perspective per se, but, you know, um, I haven't once really heard you talk about this desire to, you know, cut, make a record. You were, you were into your own music because... You're not living in L.A. at that time. You're living, I mean, San Francisco did not have a very big recording scene. It was still, L.A. was still the dominant factor. Obviously, right. things were changing with the efficiency model, and you had people, I just remember by the mid-70s, you know, you had producers telling drummers, don't, don't play yourself, just, just play straight beats, or, right. or just play the hit the way the, the feel was on the last hit tune we heard. So it was changing. But did you did you guys get into a studio and actually cut an album, or that was just not a priority? Well, what happened was, and we moved there in 78. In 1979, I think it was, or early 80, we ran into a British guy by the name of Steve Marriott. Let's talk about him. I, yeah, because I that's not on my radar. So talk, he, he was like... He was over at uh, Scapazzi's. He was in the Italian joint or something. He, he would he would come and see us at different places, right. and we met him. And he was living up in Ben Lomond at the time, or Boulder Creek, one of the two up there. And uh, him and Pam, and he came down one time. I think it was at the Crow's Nest, or it might have been the Albatross. And we sat down and started shooting the shit, and one thing led to another, and he basically said, would you guys be willing to take and record some songs with me? And we all looked at him and went, sure. Hmm. So we went in, we cut, I think it was six tracks with him. Then he took us to another studio in Modesto, wow. which is all kinds of stories of what happened there. Whoa. But he took us to the studio in Modesto, uh, and cut five, six tracks on us and mixed them. He actually played uh, organ and piano on several of them. Damn. And uh, played guitar, I think, on one, but mostly just organ and piano. He was really a good keyboard player. Uh, I don't know how many people are aware of that. No, I, I, I knew he, I actually thought he was, I mean, obviously he was a, uh... Somewhat of an impresario too, but I, I, he, he seemed like a musical partner of yours. He obviously could play. Oh yeah, and, yeah. and it was it was hilarious when we were doing rehearsals. It was like you used to bring, you used to set a bucket in the middle of the rehearsal room, and we were rehearsing at a recording studios where where we ended up cutting uh, the tracks. And 
he had this thing that he that he had put on us. Okay, so here, all right, ladies, here's what we're gonna do. Every time you make a mistake, you've got to throw a quarter in the bucket. Okay, we're down with it. We all had pockets full of change. Yeah. So we're we're rehearsing, and it's like. Every once in a while, you know, I'd have to throw one in, or Drew would have to throw one in, or George, or Diz, or whatever. whatever. Right, you hit a clam or something, yeah. Right, yeah. And then there was one point where we, where all of us ended up throwing in a quarter at the same time. It was like it was, it was, it was bad enough of a mess up that we all had to throw money in. <laughs> and we said to Steve, it was like, Steve, what are we going to do with this money in the bucket? Well, he used to like a, a, an ale called Elephant Ale. Mm. And it was like a medium kind of ale. It was really good. And it was a, a, kind of a malt. And it had like about a 12% alcohol content. Really? Yeah. Wow. So we, I, we said to him, Steve, what are we going to do with all this money? And he looked at all of us. He goes, Ale, mate, ale. <laughs> so when we had enough money, we'd send somebody to the store and grab a six-pack and bring it back, and we'd keep going again. Oh, my God, this is great. <laughs> oh. He was quite the character. It was like we ended up we ended up cutting six tracks with him, I think, which three or four of them made it on to the album that he did uh, before when he first went back east. We were out on the road touring at the time. We were in Pennsylvania, and he called us on the phone at the hotel. He goes, well, I've got some news for you guys, and, and you know, this is what's going on. And basically, the management company wanted him to take and put back together Humble Pie with Peter. And he goes, you know, he goes, I got to do it. And I said to him, I said, Steve, it's your career, Okay. I would be remiss if you didn't do it because this is what is good for Steve Marriott. You know, you've given us a boost and we love you to death for it and we'll always be there if you ever need us. But you got to do what Steve needs to do to take care of a family and yourself. So we're all behind you 100%. And that kind of, you know, kind of brought a tear to both of our eyes on the phone, you know, because we were 20. 2,200 miles away from home and, you know, couldn't see him. And uh, and that's what ended up happening. We, he ended up leaving uh, shortly thereafter. But three or four of the songs that we did, he did on the first record, which had, I forget the name of it, but it had a uh, an airplane on the front of it, like a 38 or a P-45. Okay, so I, I just want to be clear. He was in Humble Pie originally. Yes. He was also in Small Faces. That's right. Okay, so this dude... He helped, write, he helped write a bunch of the hits for Small Faces, Itchy Coop Park. I mean, there was a bunch of songs that he did, you know, and then with Frampton and, and that, with Humble Pie, 30 Days in the Hole, I mean, you know, he penned a lot of big big numbers. So he called you and was like, listen, the, the, they, they wanted to... The, the, I don't even know about who was in that... What happened yeah. was... What happened was... Yeah. We did... We did the, the songs, and he wanted to take, and he wanted to play with us. That's what the bottom line is. Right, was. right. And so we put together a showcase show. I called Seeger's management, Punch Andrews and, and Bill Blackwell. They flew in from Detroit to see the band because it was special enough. We had a keyboard player that, that worked with the, uh, the Doobie Brothers for a while. Uh, plus our band, plus the rest of our guys, and you know, with Steve. So we had two guitar players, three guitar, three guitar players. Jesus. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a big, big sound. So Punch decided that you know, because I had known him for years and years and years, as well as Bill, uh, that it was worthwhile enough for them to take a plane and come out and see it. And they, you know, it's primarily because of the fact, hey, it's Steve Marriott. We might have a shot at taking him. And so they came out, they dug daylights out of the band, absolutely loved it. Well, at the same time, word got out to Columbia, and they became interested. And But they wanted to put Steve back with Humble Pie, and that's where that whole thing came from. And uh, so... Using, using these, uh, quote-unquote, original tunes. Right, and so what happened was... 
uh, he ended up re-recording those songs with the guys that he did on the record back in New York. He actually flew my sax player at that time, Jimmy Hannibal, from Santa Cruz to New York to play all the horn parts exactly the way he had recorded them with the deluxe band. And Jimmy got credit for it, and he got paid for it on top of it all. Um, so it was just like, okay. I mean, when you listen to that album, those saxophone parts that you hear on that record, those are all Jimmy Hannibal. And the songs, most of the songs on there, Big Train was on there. Uh, what I still say to this day that uh, Billy Ray Cyrus stole the lick from that to make his first big hit. Hold on a second. You, you, you said there was an airplane on the cover? Yeah, it's a brown cover with an airplane on the front. I'm looking at, like, it says, Fool for Pretty Face, You Soppy Prat, Infatuation, Take It From Here, Saving It, Baby Don't You Do It, Get It In The End, My Lover's Prayer, Further Down The Road, Over You. Okay. Because uh, well, that's, and I, I'm looking at... What was at, the second one you said? Infatuation? Infatuation was track three. Okay, and I think, I don't know if he did it on that record or not, but we also did a version of All Shook Up. Yeah, I'm, I mean, there might be a couple. I mean, because I'm looking, that was 1980. And then go for the three. I'm just trying to figure out, God, this got real. So, so I'm sorry, you're, you're these original, two, I just want to be clear about something. Uh, he shows up at these, you know, the Crow's Nest. He's digging your band. And then you go in the studio, knock out some demos. And then you just went through that whole story there where ultimately Columbia got interested. But um, why didn't you get publishing for those some of those tunes? Or, I mean, cause the, because I didn't write them. He wrote them all. He wrote them, arranged them. All we did was perform I them. dig. So when you were throwing the quarters in the bucket for the elephant ale, that was his tunes. He said, you want to record? Oh, yeah. yeah. Ah, we okay. Rehearsed, uh, we were rehearsing the songs to record. I dig. I dig. So you're, that is amazing, man. Like, have you, where do you feel you, how do you feel you got the memo about being a selfless human being? I mean, to me, like, you know, you made it, you just basically told him, hey, man, you know, you gave us, a, you could have easily been resentful, or even if you really did not, even if you felt the way you did, you still might have pretended to be pissed off and you were just like hey man you know go for it I, I, I learned a long time ago when my brother did the first catfish record before that happened three of the guys in the band quit because I think I told you because they were not happy about the fact that it was becoming Bob Catfish Hodge as opposed to the catfish band that's right and and I I replaced those guys with my drummer and bass player. And we kept Harry Phillips on keyboards because Harry didn't, he wasn't leaving. And when it came time um, that the label and the New York management company wanted him to get those guys back in the band, we all got $500 a piece as a separation payment. I remember. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and for me at the time, that was my brother. And my brother, for me at that time, I was really upset that we didn't get to share the limelight that we worked to get him the deal, only to have those guys come back and they got to share that limelight. Uh, so that hurt me. But then I came to the point in the realization, my buddy Diz, again, you know, Hodge, you just got to remember, business is business, friendship is friendship. And I took a look at that and I thought about my brother and I went, you know what? Good for him. He ended up doing what he needed to do to try and further his career. And he's my brother. We don't love any, each other any less. That's not going to change. Right. Uh, am I hurt? Yeah. You know, am I a little testy about it? Yeah, I am. <laughs> However, having said that, it was easier for me when Steve was doing what he had to do to just say, hey, you got our blessings. You gave us something that we had not been able to obtain at that point. Not only did we get to record his songs, but he took us into the studio and had us record our songs. 
never wanted publishing, never wanted any fees. He took care of everything. So it was like, okay, you go get them. And it was real funny because in 1980, let's see, Hodge Brothers, I moved down here in 82, yeah. 83, 84. We had the Hodge Brothers band, and we were playing at a, a club here, a big venue called the Country Club in Reseda. Sure. About a 1,200, 1,500-seater. Wow, like I love that. Club. I've never been there. That's so classic you were playing there. Go ahead. So we, we opened for Marriott at that time, which was prior to him going to go back to New York and hook up with Peter Frampton, which he had moved to England shortly after that, and that's when he died, and that, that band never got together, uh, which was really sad. But we're, we're playing at the club. My wife is there, and we're playing there, and we've got the Hodge Brothers. You know, we're opening the show. We're, we're kicking ass. <laughs> and, and he's in his bus outside, and, and so, you know, he invited us to come out to the bus and sit on and whatever, whatever. And he goes, Dallas, he goes, I want you to come with me. I said, what do you mean you want me to come with you? He goes, I want to take you on the bus and take you on the road with me. I said, okay, when do you want to do this? He goes, tonight. I said, what about your other guitar player? He goes, I'll send him home. And I go, Steve, I can't. He goes, why not? I said, because I'm playing with my brother in this band, and there's no way that I would ever walk away without at least a 30-day notice especially from a band that I'm loving playing with. Right. I said, that just, it can't happen. So it was hilarious. I went in, I went, had to go back inside and he, he started talking to my wife uh, who was there and he goes, Peggy, you gotta do me a favor. <laughs> she goes, what's that? She goes, you gotta talk to Allison. They're coming on the road with me. She looked at him and chuckled. She goes, hey, Steve, Dallas is Dallas. He's going to do what he's going to do. If he wants to do it, he'll do it. If he doesn't want to do it, I can't do anything to convince him to change his mind. Wow. So if you want to try and talk him into it, go for it. I thought she was going to be like, get your butt on the road. We need the bread, you know? <laughs> <Like, laughs> no, nah, she, she, she was really the... No, she knows you, obviously. That's great. Well, she's been the breadwinner. You know, I, I played, you know, uh, the stay-at-home dad. That's fine. Me too, man. Yeah, I was, I was down with that. And so she was the breadwinner. She ended up going to work at NBC and eventually grew into the point where she was a producer at NBC. Holy um, shit. They flew her for Doctors Without Borders to Hawaii. They flew her to London to do Friends. Um, wow. Wow. She, they flew her down to Texas to go interview Garth Brooks. No, yeah, I mean, we're talking, like, elite-level pr producer here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, she started out there as the executive secretary to the to the executive of merchandising for NBC and eventually grew into getting a production slot uh, that after her boss left, the big boss that she worked for, Jay, said, uh, would you be interested in trying this out? She goes, sure. Well, they gave her a crew and she started doing what she did and Within six months' time, she was getting promoted, and then again and then promoted, and then again promoted, and it was like, okay. So, you know, she was one. She was the breadwinner. And, uh, well, that's beautiful. And, yeah, I mean, it worked out. I tried to get a job at one point in time when, when we were living in Canola Park, and it was like I was going to go to work for Aramark. I was trying to get a job at Aramark driving a truck. Right. And I, I said to him, I said, well, you know, I've driven trucks many times. Well... What they called a bobtail, I called coming from Detroit a cab and chassis. Mm -hmm. Okay, they said you drive a bobtail, and I went, "What's that?" <laughs> that was like strike number one. Right, right. They're like, "What is you know, this guy oh, doing?" You don't know what yeah. a bobtail. Mm, okay, because most of the trucks that they had out here at that time, they were all step vans. I'm looking at that and going, I can drive that all day long, man. Or, hey, you know, you want me to drive to Chicago and back? No problem. <laughs> uh, so, but then it came down at the time they were paying like $12 an hour. And, I, and we had two kids and I'm like going, okay, if we put them both in daycare. That's $3 an hour per kid. Right. There goes $6. Then there's taxes. There goes another $4. 
and then there's this and that. And by the time it was done, all I was going to do was earn about $2 an hour for working 40 hours a week. Jeez. And I just went, this makes no sense at all. <laughs> Might as well stay home with the kids. Hey, you know, and that was it. So that's what I ended up doing. You know, I played played Mr. Mom, and then when they got to the age of playing baseball and stuff, uh, they played baseball. I took them all to games, tournaments, in-state, out-of-state, wherever. My my oldest son got drafted twice by Major League. Really? Uh, yeah, he got drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates as a draft and follow, and they didn't pick up on the draft and follow, and then they got uh, drafted by the Dodgers. Uh, but didn't take it because our biggest thing was we didn't care about a signing bonus. What we cared about was education. Mm. So we told the scout that was, you know, promoting him to the Dodger organization. He called us. He goes, well, we want to take him. They they had him drafted, and I think it was the 23rd round, if I remember right, and which is not bad. So I mean, so I, who cares at this point? Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, it was like we told him. He goes, "Look, you don't even have to fly him down to Vero Beach. He can take a bus. We don't care about that, but we do care about the school because when we talked with Pittsburgh, they were willing to give him uh, eighty thousand dollars at the time to cover schooling if they would have taken him. Wow. Okay, so we're figuring. All right, let's make a pop and see what happens with the Dodgers. So they call and they go, well, we're going to get, we're going to offer them a thousand dollars. I said, okay, what about school? Oh, you want school? Yeah, we want school. We don't care about the signing bonus. We want school. Oh, well, let me go back to them. Hour goes around and calls me back. Well, I got it up to three thousand dollars. Okay, what about school? Uh, I'm still trying on that. I said, when you get the, the school covered bump, call me. So about two hours went by. I get another phone call. All right, Dallas, best and final offer. I go, okay, what is it, Bump? He goes, we'll give him $5,000 to sign. Well, $5,000 in the 23rd round back then was like the bottom of the barrel. My son was throwing 92, 93 miles an hour. He was a left-handed hitter, a right-handed pitcher, and in his high school year, he led the entire southern section with a batting average of 550. This was down in SoCal? Uh, down, yeah, down here in Southern California. Unbelievable. How did, wait, yeah. he had 560? His batting average was 550. That's insane, dude. Yes. And so, I mean, he parked the ball one time on my travel ball team on the roof of the three-story garage at uh, USC. Oh my God! In right field, were they were they, they were using? I mean, they were they were using they were using aluminum bats though. He wasn't using a wooden wooden. Bat. No, they were using wood back then. Oh, that, that's so that, sick. that is so freaking old school. I, first of all, what, I'm I, I'm curious. I just I don't want to get totally bogged down with this, but what? Why did you not take that eighty grand from Pittsburgh? They did it as a draft and follow. So when it came to draft day, they didn't take him. So that, that that was just an offer that was on the table, but they they pulled back on. Okay, it. so they, they basically because they they didn't they they rescinded that education right. fund. Okay, got that's it. That's why they took, that's why they put him in as a what they called a draft and follow. I dig, right? yeah, I dig, I dig. So so when when Bump come back with a five K, I said to him, I said, okay, I said, what about the school, Bump? He goes, well, here's the deal, Dallas. He goes, the fact that your kid scored 1250 on his SAT, they're scared that he's going to end up going to take the money and go to school. I said, well, that's kind of the plan, Bump. If yeah. it doesn't work, he goes, well, they don't want to do that. And I went, okay, fine. We'll see you later. And, and that was that. Now I've got my grandson, who I just learned the other day, according to baseball, US, USA Baseball or Baseball Today, in in the entire country, right now, he's number 88 out of the top 100 as a catcher-hitter. What? Where? How old is he now? 16. And, uh, oh boy. All right, so we're, we got to keep an eye on this kid. What's his name? His name is Landon Hodge. Landon. He was going to go to Stanford, but he, he decommitted because the fact that they wanted him to take these AP classes or honors classes, whatever it was, that were really tough. And he had to keep a certain 
GPA in order for the whole thing to fly. And in this last week, he started realizing that even though he was going with a 4.3, that the the walls were closing in because the work now was getting more and more. And with his baseball schedule, we live about an hour from his school. So because of the drive time in the morning and the drive time in the evening, he was getting home after baseball at, at you know, we could be anywhere between 8 and 9 o'clock at night. Which just made it extremely difficult for him to get all of his work done. No, I, my my older daughter, not as prolific uh, uh, in terms of sports, she's on the swim team. But same thing, senior year, she just right now she decided to take this absurd calculus class with all these fruit math freaks, and it's just, I mean, she's concerned it's going to cost her a chance at you know Columbia. It's it is really intense, you know. You know, and, he, and 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 it was funny because when he called the coaches up at Stanford to tell them that what he was going to do, the head coach up there said, "I understand, Landon." He goes, "I'm in your corner 100 percent, and if there's anything that I can do to help you, I will do so." Well, it just so happened to be he called the head coach over at LSU. When he got off the phone with Landon, and 15 minutes later, the head coach at LSU calls Landon and goes, I want to talk to you. <laughs> Jeez, I, this is always how it works, dude. Yeah, so now he's got LSU interested. He's got Texas Christian interested. Uh, he's got UCLA interested. Yeah, these are all like College World Series cat teams, you know? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, well, one fine, I want to ask you about So your son, I mean, it, I, I, the... You were not a, a a domineering patriarchal kind of family, uh, I don't think, with your kids. But um, your son didn't like be like dad. Well, I just like he was he was cool with you calling the shots for him. Well, no, it was always the the the, the call was never mine solely. It was never mine solely. Right, right. But he he knew as we knew at the time that baseball does not last. Right, but the education does, and so what happens if you don't make it past five years? What are you going to do for work? You need that education, and so you know, it's like we all had sat down and had the family talk. You know, what do you want to do? He goes, "I'm with you guys. I want to get the education." Wow. So, so when we turned it down, it was just like, okay. I'm just going to go on. He went on to play some college ball and got done with that. And then now he's a uh, a coach for three different travel ball teams. Matter of fact, he's in Arizona right now. He'll be home tomorrow. He's uh, got an 18 and under team there. That it's these are seniors. That this wow. is their last their wow. last hurrah to try to get some scouts interested, whether it's schools or pro. So he went there with the team to take them and. Uh, do what they could do. Dallas, I wanna um I, I you know, I just I, I would like to finish this set. Uh it's funny, it happens to be this this cat's birthday today. And when I first cosmically found that uh catfish record with you and those cats on eastbound and I, you know, I wasn't friends with you on Facebook and a lot of times if you're not friends with somebody, that message request will never get through. So I sent you the message, and I looked at who your mutual, our mutual friends were. And one of them was this guy I'm going to ask you about. And I, I texted him. I said, hey, man, do you have any information? Can you hook me up with, with Dallas? And within, Tony Brownigle. Tony Brownigle, a dear friend. It's his birthday. Did you play with Bonnie Ray with him, or how did you guys connect? Oh, man. Let's see. We met Tony years ago. I mean, all I'm saying is that, like, get me in a room with you, your brother, Tony. I mean, mean, we're talking about kicking out the jams hard. Well, we started, we, Tony played with us off and on uh, for a while after the Hodge Brothers band. He also played off and on with me when it was uh, Tony, myself, and, uh, my buddy from Tulsa, Skip Van Winkle. Oh, my God. Wait a minute, dude. Are there tapes? I need to hear tapes of that. Uh, there's not very many anymore. There were a couple. Fish had a bunch of them, but when his house burnt down, I <sighs> heard of the tapes. 
And Carl Schwabenbauer, who was our sound engineer when we were at Old Mahoney's with the Hodge brothers, uh, did all kinds of recordings. Recorded every night. We played there four nights a week. He recorded every night. He died unexpectedly of a heart attack, and I never learned about it until like two years later and had no way of getting in touch with his mom and found out later that she had thrown all of them away. Oh, well, I mean, uh, I want to, before we move on, so, so also the, the, the original, you guys were called, it was, uh, Steve Marriott and the Deluxe Band, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, cause there's some stuff on YouTube that I'm looking at right now. Did, did you wind up, did, were you able to preserve those studio recordings of your original music with him when he took you in? Yes. That I have. That has I that also, ever I seen also, the light of day? I, I would love, love to hear some of that. Has that I, ever? I also have a. Uh, nobody's heard it, and we've kept it under wraps for the longest time. Oh boy. We when we did the show at the club that was next door to the Catalyst upstairs. It was called the High Country. Yes. It's now a clothing store, I think, or a restaurant. Anyway, when we did that show, we did live video and sound that night. But we had an issue because the guy who was doing the actual engineering didn't listen to the producer about how things needed to be set up. Yep. And so there were some glitches along the way. So we couldn't use the video because of the sound glitches or because of the video glitches. They, they wouldn't sync properly. Totally. However, I do have... Uh, three, two reels, three reels. I just had them all done. I took them to a, a production house. I had had these um, two-inch reels that John Chesley, who was the executive producer, producer on that, um, he had asked me, you know, could I take and get them put onto a hard drive because the tapes were old, obviously, you know, 40 years old. Um and wanted to take and, and have them put on a hard drive to preserve them. So I took them to a, a, a shop here in town, which did a great job. Matter of fact, they were working on Little Feet shit when I was there. Wow. Uh, copying all of it and putting it onto a hard drive. And so I now have all of the songs from that live show, except for, part, except for the intro on one, uh, from that live show that we did. Uh, now on a hard drive. And so I took that hard drive to my engineer that I work with in the studio and asked him, I said, Tim, I need you to take and uh, remix all of this stuff so that it sounds as good as possible. So he spent, I'm like, I can't even tell you how many hours. I can't even tell you how many hours. And it was very difficult because it was only a four-track recording. Sure. So because of that, you know, you've got this group and that group and this group and that group and trying to get the sound sonically to match and sound good and then mix everything so that it is cohesive took him a lot of hours. Right, to get it to sound bright and stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and to get it to sound like it was cohesive. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? That overall sound and, and, and tone and, and all of that was, was good. So, and John was paying for me to have Tim do that, which was good because, you know, Tim was doing it for me because he's my engineer and a good friend. So... He did it. It came out sounding really, really good. I gave John Chesley his copy of it, and I said, so, I says, what are you going to do? What's your plan to do with this? I said, because I really want to do something and put it out. And I says, and I won't do that until I talk to Pam, and she can talk to the kids to make sure that it's okay mm. for me to put it out because, you know, I'm not doing it for the money. I mean, if, if I make money, that's yeah, it's called legacy. It's called legacy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I said, and whatever royalties that, you know, come in, obviously Steve wrote, you know, the material except for my songs that we did on the show, you know, I'm going to set it up through the publishing companies that, you know, he gets all of that, you and the family get all of that. I don't want any of that. Uh, I'll take what's mine, but I ain't going to bother taking his. That's not fair. So John said he was going to get in touch with Pam and talk to her and see if 
it was okay to do something with it. Now, that was about six months ago, and I haven't talked to John since then. So I don't know where we are in the process. Um, and obviously, I can't let anything of that out. No, I, I'm, I'm curious about... Well, that's fantastic, and I hope that continues to move forward. Did you... What is the the earliest Dallas Hodge original stuff, maybe going back to the Detroit days, that is that you that you recorded that you're that I, I just want to hear. There's just not enough Dallas. There's a lot of Catfish Band. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the, and it's unbelievably funky and nasty. Bob, Bob Babbitt played piano on one of your brother's records that you were on. Oh yeah. He played. He played on the on the cat, first Catfish Hodge album. I think he also played on the second album too. Uh, it, this one was became, like then yeah. he became a minister. And, and last time I talked to him, he didn't, it was the weirdest thing, Jay. He called me out of the blue. hadn't talked to him in I don't know how many years. And he said to me, he goes, Dallas. He goes, Bob Babbage. I go, Hey man, how you doing? You playing? He goes, No, no, I'm a, I'm a minister now. I said, Oh, okay. What's up? He goes, Well, I'm calling you. He goes. I've got some keys and some towels from a Holiday Inn, and I'm like going, "Okay, yeah, what you want me what what you want me to do there, Bobby?" He goes, "Well, I was wondering if you could tell me how would I be able to send it back to them." Now this is like 15 years, 20 years Dude, later. What is going on? And, and I'm like, going, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, okay, are you losing it? I mean, you know, because uh, Pat Freer, the drummer on that stuff, he had told me that Bob had become a minister and stuff, and and Pat had talked to him once. It's kind of a similar conversation. You know, we're all wondering, did he, is he losing it? Yeah, right, 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 right. You know, uh, that is so man. insanely. I mean, it's kind of humorous, but that's bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it was just bizarre. I mean, it's like, you know, if you want to get the keys back, I said, you know, Holiday Inn has a thing where you just put them in the mailbox and it goes to them. I said, as far as the towels are concerned, I got nothing to tell you. <laughs> and he's like, okay, thanks. Thanks, Dallas. That was it. And I haven't talked to him since, except when I tried to take, I was going to take and try and put the Catfish Hodge Band back together to do one gig. And that was going to be it. And I tried to do it before Billy Lamas passed away and wasn't able to. And then I tried again after Billy was gone, but before Shaky Al Warnikin w passed away. And I thought, you know, I know a couple of bass players in Detroit that would be more than happy to learn Billy's parts note for note because he was such a good bass player. And I still couldn't put everybody together. It was just like... You know, Babbage was like, well, I ain't played in 15 years, and I don't know. I said, I got you covered. I have another <laughs> piano player that will set up on stage with you, and whatever you think you can't do, he will come in and sit next to you on another keyboard and play the parts. Well, I don't know. It's just like, and I, I, I had to just give up on it. And it broke my heart because one day I was in a rental car. I was going to rehearsals in Detroit. I had gone back to do the all-star thing and I had gotten the new CD that came out, uh, with the best of Eastbound Catfish Hodge. Sure. And it's a double CD. I just saw that. Yeah. There are songs in that CD that even Fish and I didn't remember recording. Wow. Well, we, we talked about it after I got my copy. I called him on the phone. I said, Bob, I said, where did this track come from? I said, I, rem I, re I remember playing the parts, but when did we record this? <laughs> Wow. And apparently it was one of the tracks that just never made it to a record. And I couldn't remember it, Jake, to save my life. So anyway, were they, re they were really good? They were burning tracks? Uh, <laughs> it was a smoking rock oh and roller, I'm telling you. So I'm oh. driving in the car and I'm going to rehearsal and all of a sudden uh, I'm listening to uh, uh, I'll Be Gone and then I'm listening to The Boogeyman. Yeah. And then I'm listening to uh, to uh, she's so heavy, and I'm I'm going batshit crazy. <laughs> I am dancing in the car. I pull up to park at rehearsal. I couldn't get out of the car. I had to call Fish from the car. I said, "You ain't gonna believe this, man." But I'm sitting here waiting in front of a rehearsal hall, and I cannot get out of the car because this shit sounds so good. I'm going nuts. Oh. 
Oh. It was a smoking band. It was absolutely. I, I to this day, the two best bands I've ever played with, for me personally, was the Catfish Hodge Band, the original Boogeyman lineup, and the Hodge Brothers Band. And that's the two best bands I've ever played with. I played with some of the best musicians and some of the greatest musicians as far as notoriety was concerned when we did the Hodge Brothers. It's like I was telling you, Marty Greb, David Woodford, Skip Van Winkle, Come Primo. on, dude. Oh, yeah. You, you have you, you're, are you, I, I'm just going to go on a limb here. Did you ever cross paths with, he's a dear friend of mine, I haven't talked to him in a minute, Jimmy Keltner? Sure. Did he ever play with the Hodgebet? Did he ever play with you guys? No, no. But I did have Ian Wallace play with me for a while, who was uh, the original drummer in King Crimson. Oh, dude, uh, I mean, this is, I, dude, honestly, you're good. I mean, that's the other thing we should, we definitely going to have to do set three because, there, we well, one thing we really haven't talked about is just like your guitar style and just like the flow of your guitar is insane. So I mean, it doesn't surprise me that you played with all these cats. What is surpri- very surprisingly and surprising and um, to me a, a bright spot is that number one, you're still here, and number two, you're not jaded. You know, I mean, yeah, you get feisty about stuff. You get, you know, some stuff still sits in your craw. I don't know. I, there are cats that are pretty resentful as they get older. The phone stops ringing. They think they were completely responsible for what was coming through them, whether it was their apparatus or their voice, not realizing that they were only partially responsible for it. I just feel like you got the memo on that, man, and, and you're blessed because of it, man. Well, I, I, I wish that I would have somehow been able to drum up more notoriety on myself. Well, but Jake Feinberg found you. Now you're all over the place, dude. I, 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 don't, I don't allow it to eat me up because I learned a long time ago, if you allow it to eat you up, you lose. Period. And it was like when I changed the name of the band 20 years ago now, 20 plus years ago to Dallas Hodge. Right. The guys in my band over the time from then and through up till the band now, I mean, the guys I've had got with me now have been with me from any, the, the newest guy in the band's been with me for eight years and the longest one is now going on 13 years. You know, people, like I told you, my bands don't die fast. No, I love, well, no, I mean, and, and, you, and, and it's fair to say that there were, there were some strained times within this group. But you oh, helped, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, it's like, People have asked me a couple of times. Guys in the band asked me in the very beginning when they started first, the, 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 the guys started working with me. Why is it that you just call it Dallas Hodge? I said, because Bonnie Raitt told me something. And he went, okay, what'd she say? I said, Bonnie said, use your own name. You're the front man. That's the best that I can tell you. And I took from that and I, I figured it out. There's a lot of reasons for that. One, if I'm going as the front man, I'm the singer, the guitar player, the songwriter, and I'm the one they're dealing with. I should be out in front. That's right. And I don't mean that from an arrogant, egotistical standpoint, from a business standpoint solely. And and the other part of that is is that if I go as a band, and I did a band thing for a, probably the majority of my career, actually, uh, the Deluxe Band, Salvage, uh, HVWT, I mean, a bunch of them. And it was like, every time you change a personnel guy, guess what? You had to change all your promo. You had to change all the photos. And that gets costly. And it's a big pain in the ass. Yeah, that's insane. I didn't think about that, yeah. So I just figured that, hey, I call it Dallas Hodge. I put my ugly mug on there for the most part. When we came out with the CD in, in 19... Uh, that had a group shot. It still said Dallas Hodge, but that had a group shot. And I still use that group shot for my promo stuff because those guys have stuck with me through thick and thin. I've done, they've done $30 gigs and they've done $300 gigs with me. And they're there whenever I call. So, you know, they all have the same, same affection that most of the musicians that I've had in my career 
for the music and the fact that I, I'd like to think anyway, I'm kind of easy to get along with. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure telling I you this much, man. When I, next time I'm coming out to uh, California, uh, we got to make it a point to get together and ideally you'll be having a gig around that time. I'd love to come see you. Oh, that'd be great, man. Yeah, man. We'll have to go down and get some lunch at our breakfast down at Nate's down in uh, in the valley. Oh, dude, we're gonna we're gonna go and have a ball, man. This has been uh, it's such an honor to connect with you, man. And uh, let's do it again. Let's do it again Tony, soon. Tony Bronigo, I should say also too. He's played off and on with me for years. We've recorded with other people over years. Uh, my first record, Reelin', uh, he did half of the record. And Larry Zach, my current full-time drummer, did the other half of the record. Yo, you, yo. By the way, can you hook me up with Larry Zach? I'd love to interview that guy. Sure. Oh my sure. god, I want to get to all this underbelly. Right, this is so important, man. These guys, I, I'm so. I mean, for me as a journalist, this is you go down these rabbit holes, you don't want to come back up, man. <laughs> it's like going after the candy once you had a piece you can't stop i mean come on man you're in the snowbank and i'm being born in 78 i mean come on are you kidding me <laughs> yeah man listen uh much love we'll uh we'll do it again man let me know and uh i'll get in touch with larry and i will give give him a heads up and and tell him that you're going to call him that you want to interview him because you know he was the, uh, dude, I, dude, Savage we're talking Grace. about a serious OG original cat, dude. Yeah, he was with Savage Grace. That was his band. They moved out here because of Warner Brothers. He played with Jackson Brown. He played with Lauren Zevon. Uh, You're telling me he's with, he's your elder, though. He's your brother's. He's a little bit older than you. Yeah, he's yeah. seventy. Let's see, he's seventy-four, seventy-five now, somewhere around there. I can't still wait, man. Drums, still plays drums like a monster. Oh, my God. I did. We, okay, so, yo, keep me in the loop about once you get back, get your chops back and you're feeling all right, keep me in the loop about gigs because I'll try to get out there to see you guys. Sounds like a plan. Hey, brother, much love to your family, man. Good to hear you. To you, too, and let me know when you want to do part three. Absolutely, bro. Probably in person, actually. Okay. Yeah, but we'll figure it out. In the meantime, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon, man. Sounds good. Thanks, Jake. Thank you, Dallas. It. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Later.